Hey, it's Dr. Angles. Welcome to Advocate. Please be advised that the subject matter that we will be discussing may be disturbing to some listeners. And a big shout out to my friend Corey Hendricks for allowing me to sample his song, Invocatio. You can now download his song from Apple Music, Spotify, and more. Go check him out, and thanks for tuning in. Good morning, Advocate family, or afternoon, or evening, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, This is Dr. Ingalls, and I'm coming to you from sunny California. I want to thank you for tuning in for episode one of um, Advocate, and this episode is going to highlight the rape kit itself, why we're here, and what what we need to address, and how we want to enact change. And so I want to give a little bit of background about the rape kit for those of you who don't know, or even for those of you who do know and who want to hear it from somebody, from a perspective from somebody who has insider knowledge on this. And um, uh, I am one of those people. My maternal grandfather is Louis Arvatulo, and he was a Chicago police officer, and he was promoted to sergeant. And then later he went and retired as the chief microanalyst of the crime lab, the city's crime lab in Chicago. So when my grandfather was a street officer or patrol officer. He called it a beat cop. And I don't know if that's considered derogatory or not, but that's what he called it. So, um, but I would prefer the term patrol officer, but he was a first responder like many. And he started to notice, you know, when he would get to crime scenes that everybody had a different method in which they would investigate a crime scene. And at the time, like this was, I want to say the late fifties, early sixties, there was definitely like they had the the nuts and the bolts of how to really, you know, investigate a crime scene, but there was some deficits that he recognized and the orderliness of those nuts and bolts and the and the methods that each person felt, you know, was better. And so he decided, you know, I'm realizing that the the collection of the evidence at these crime scenes is so important for conviction rates, he decided he wanted to start focusing more on that. And so that's what brought him back to school. He got his master's. He took a lot of extra courses and he ended up in the crime lab and was a forensic scientist in the crime lab. Still a Chicago police officer too. So while he was there, he started to co-author books on crime scene investigations And these were intended initially for, you know, cadets that were in the academy and first responders who were starting out. And the goal was to highlight what needed to be done, but in an orderly fashion, in a fashion that would limit the the ability for things to be contaminated in any capacity or things for for things to be tampered with in any capacity. And so he had fine-tuned or helped fine-tune the orderliness of how this should be done and how this should be standardized no matter what crime scene you happen upon and no matter who you are. This is, should be the gold standard of how you do it. And this will hold up in court. So so he started to kind of forge the way at that time as being a forensic expert in the city of Chicago and sp- in specific to crime scene investigations. And while he was forging his changes in criminal investigation processes, at the same time, there was a woman trying to forge the same. 
but they were taking parallel paths. And this woman's name is Martha Goddard. Martha Goddard is a woman that was a victim of a rape. And she was called, or after her rape, she called law enforcement as one would do. And when she was giving her story and her account of what occurred to the investigating officer, the officer told her that he did not believe her. And bewildered by this, as anyone would be, she questioned why that was. And he stated that in his opinion, he had this idea of what it would look like or, or what someone would behave and feel if they were a victim of a rape and how that would appear to him. And because she didn't fit this stereotype of what he felt a rape victim would look like or behave, he didn't believe that her account was true. And so Martha was, you know, I, I've, I, can I can't even, I don't even want to speak for her. I don't want to say what she felt, but I can only imagine like every negative possible feeling was going through her at that moment in time, having just been the victim, having just been violated and then violated again by being accused of being a liar and falsifying something so serious. So she decided to turn her experience into action and she formed the Citizens Committee for Victims Assistance, which was an organization in the city of Chicago that where citizens would get together to help victims because she realized that they weren't helping victims of sexual crime. And so she also became an advocate for rape and uh, victims of rape and sexual assault. And she was very active in her community in support of these things uh, and supporting victims and, and, you know, working towards reducing crime in the city. So Martha just like my grandfather, recognized that there was no real standard way in which law enforcement was handling sex crimes. And being that now she was in, involved in all of these committees and these organizations, and she was meeting other victims and hearing their stories, and she was realizing that unless somebody was caught in the act and, you know, or they knew exactly who it was, the police were not really doing much with this. They didn't have anything to go off of, and a lot of times they didn't believe the victim, and so therefore nothing was being investigated, that the case would just be closed. And so she realized that this had to change. We needed to do better than that. So she somehow happened upon my grandfather around this time, who was also trying to pave the way of improving forensic um, collection and, and crime scene investigation and standardizing the methods in which we we do that. And so she approached him and she explained to him her story, what her experience was, what she has been recognizing as a pattern in the city of Chicago when law enforcement responds to uh, sexual crime and how there is no standard method in which they're investigating this. In fact, they're not investigating many of them at all. And so together they teamed up and they interviewed a lot of attorneys, uh, prosecutors, um, judges, detectives, to try to figure out everything and anything they would need to make sure that that evidence in a court of law would be the smoking gun, that it couldn't be refuted, it couldn't be discredited, and that victims would be believed. And so together, they 
they created the first ever rape kit. And it was called the Vitulo Evidence Collection Kit. And my grandfather also credited Martha and honored her in this by copywriting it to the uh, Citizens Committee for Victim Assistance. So they got the copyrights to this. It was named after him because he created the kit and fine-tuned all the forensic aspects of it as that he was the expert in that. And it was implemented to 215 hospitals in the state of Illinois once it was, you know, done and the prototype was completed and, and they felt like everything was good to go. And then eventually it was shown to be used nationally, now internationally, and now it's just, it's used in all cases. Um, but what they didn't think was that one day there would be a backlog of untested rape kits. And right now there's an estimated 400,000 in the United States that have gone untested. And that is an underestimation because those are the those are only the ones that have been reported. And so we know we can fairly say that that estimate is, li- is likely grossly lower than it should be. And so why? Why? Why are these going untested? And there were a lot of reasons initially for that. And I talk a lot about this in a book I wrote. And this book is um, it's called The Power of Truth, The Life of Louis Vitulo and the Legacy of the Rape Kit. And it's being published by Genius Books Publishing, and it's going to be released on September 4th of 2020. And a portion of each sale of that book is going to go towards ending the backlog of untested kits. It's going to go toward helping sexual um, assault survivors and victims of sexual crime. And I talk a lot about the reasons why this backlog has occurred over the years and why in a lot of ways it's understandable, but we're at a place now where it no longer is. There's no reason for it. And so that's why we're here. That's why this podcast is happening, because I want to highlight the importance of having these kits tested timely. And it's not just because, um, you know, the victim needs justice. The, the victim needs closure and the victim needs to feel safe again. I mean, that is obviously number one. But every victim that comes forward and goes through the grueling process of recanting their story to law enforcement and the six-hour procedure that it takes to have a rape kit done, which includes being completely naked in front of strangers, having your clothes swabbed, your body swabbed and scraped, photographed, and you had just been the victim of an assault and now it feels like you're being assaulted all over again. The reality is a rape victim's body is the crime scene. And they have to go through that grueling process of giving the evidence so that their perpetrator can be caught. And yet 400,000 minimum are sitting on shelves untested. And the victims who went through that grueling process for justice are getting nowhere. They're not even getting updates. There's no tracking system on these rape kits. At least there hasn't been. And it's definitely not federally tracked. So we need to address that. But also when we do address the backlog of untested kits, what we're finding is that there are serial rapists connected to several. And that's unacceptable. So every time a rape victim comes forward, gives their evidence, and tries to pursue legal action against their assailant, 
we're doing them a disservice for go- for revictimizing themselves for the justice of everyone else. Because in reality, every victim that does that, they're doing that not just for them, but they're doing that for all of us. Because the more they speak out and the and and the more we identify who these individuals are, the less they're going to re-victimize. You and I and your sisters and your brothers and your moms and your aunts and your cousins, we're all safe because these victims were brave enough to speak out. And so we need to do better. And here's some reasons why this is so important. Recently, I don't know if any of you are familiar, um, but Michelle McNamara uh, was a true crime writer. And she was also the late wife of Patton Oswalt. And she had been following the Golden State Killer um, and his series of crimes for many, many years. And she wrote a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And recently, HBO aired a documentary of the same name about her efforts and how much she put into this and how many people she met along the way, the people that helped her and the toll that it took on her to try to identify who the Golden State Killer was. And the Golden State Killer is somebody that was a serial rapist and a serial killer. And I think he had killed 13 people and raped over 50 over a course of several years. And he's called the Golden State Killer because he started out um, in Northern California, but eventually migrated to Southern California. And so um, this man, you know, had gone for decades without being caught. He was not identified. Nobody had any idea who he was. We have basics. We had his height. We had his uh you know, an estimate of his height, an estimate of his weight. We had his race. We had ideas of what he likely did for a living, just given his behavioral patterns and and how, you know, really strategic he was in his crimes. Um, So we knew basic things, but we still didn't know who this man was and why he chose certain people. So while they were trying to find who this Golden State Killer was, Michelle had this genius idea of seeing if any evidence still existed in his cases that could be used to upload into 23andMe. And for those of you that don't know, it's a DNA ancestry site. You spit into a tube and you send it off and they upload a profile for you and it tells you your ancestry history, your health history, and it also tells you others who have done the same that have that have shared DNA with you. So, for example, I did it, and I have a list of fourth, third, second degree cousins that also have profiles in that database that I've connected to that I didn't even know existed. And so she had this genius idea that if we did that, maybe we could connect to a relative of his. And so they went back and they asked all of the counties, you know, that he had actually conducted crime in if they had any evidence remaining, and one of them did. And they had several rape kits that they still had on file. So when the victims were found, or if, if they hadn't been killed, and when they reported the crime, the evidence was collected, and it was um, kept in their evidence lockers, untested. So they were able to take DNA from the kits, and get. they were luckily able to get enough DNA to provide a sample to 23andMe. And 23andMe uploaded the profile, and they discovered that there were several 
um, relatives with that shared DNA in the system. Unfortunately, Michelle McNamara passed away right around this time. So she did not live to see the identity of the person that she had been chasing for years and years. But because of how vested she was in this and because of how far she had gone and how far she had come, the people that were working with her and her late husband or her 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 husband then, Pat Oswald, had continued her work. And so they worked diligently with that DNA information and they had to create a lot of replica family trees and they eventually were able to narrow down the the pool of people and eventually they were able to identify one. And I won't spoil all the details because it's really um it's really well explained in the documentary and also her book. It's so great. I highly recommend it. Um, but they were able to identify one person that that appeared to have a possible full match because they had he shared Dan, DNA with the profile and also he shared all the characteristics that were reported over the years from his victims, especially the ones who were fortunate enough to survive. Um, so from there, uh, they narrowed it down to one and they discovered where he lived and they kind of did a stakeout of his house. And at this time, he's a lot older. And so they noticed when he took his trash out and because trash um, and it, when it was put on the on the street, it was public. They went in his trash and they grabbed some items that they figured they could grab some DNA samples from. And they were successful and they got some DNA samples from his trash and they compared it to the DNA sample that was given to 23andMe and from the rape kits and they got a 100% match. And they identified the Golden State Killer as Joseph James D'Angelo. And he was arrested and he recently pled guilty to his crimes. He admitted it, uh, admitted that he was the Golden State Killer and now he's serving life in prison. Although, you know, he's, I want to say he's in his early to mid seventies now. And he last I saw him, um, you know, in his trial, he was looking pretty, pretty, pretty ill. So life in prison may be short, but the point is, untested rape kits could lead to identifying serial rapists and serial killers who had gone unidentified for decades. And a couple other examples of that would be the Grim Sleeper, who was very similarly found. And the Grim Sleeper was a man who um, would prey on disenfranchised women in South Los Angeles, and he would rape and he would kill them and he would leave their bodies. And there was a victim that did survive and was able to give some descriptive details of him and what kind of car he drove and, you know, um, Police had maintained that information and kept trying to look and narrow it down. Um, but they were still having a difficult time finding him because they called him the Grim Sleeper because he would take, like most serial uh, rapists or serial killers do, periods of time where he was no longer active. And then he would just suddenly become active again. So he became active again, I think, in 2000. And um, they didn't have any DNA in the database for him. So they took old, um, old rape kit DNA 
they uploaded it into the national database for law enforcement called CODIS, and they got a match. And it was a very close match, not a full match, but it turned out that it was the Grim Sleeper's son, and he was incarcerated. So now in the state of California, any time that anybody goes into prison, we upload their DNA into CODIS, which is our national DNA database, so that um, we have their DNA. So when they're released, you know, we, we, we have this stuff on file in case we ever need to identify somebody again. And so they were able to find a match to his son who was incarcerated. And so because they knew based on the comparability of the DNA that the, the DNA match was likely a father because, I, you know, I'm not the scientist, but they, they can tell these things. Um, they kind of did a fake out of who they suspected was the Grim Sleeper. And he, when he went to a pizza place, he ate some pizza and was drinking some soda. And when he left, police ran in there and they took some of the leftover slices that he left. And, the, and they took the cup and they brought it for DNA testing. They got DNA they uploaded it and they got a hundred percent match to the rape kits. And so therefore Lonnie Franklin was then identified and arrested as the grim sleeper. And so the rape kits that are sitting on shelves could easily identify serial rapists that are still active today. And serial rapists also can be serial killers, like we've seen with Grim Sleeper and like we've seen with the Golden State Killer. And we have an obligation to be testing those, not just for the victim, but for the rest of us. And I, and there's no reason why we aren't. There's really, there's no reason why these should remain untested. So it's really important that we draw awareness to these kits and why we need to bring them to light. So I'd like to hear from you guys. I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on the backlog. Um, if you are in law enforcement or have worked in criminal justice, I'd love to hear what your take is on why agencies are backlogged and how we can help address that backlog. But more importantly, what we're also finding is when kits that have been sitting untested for years are finally tested, not only are we identifying serial rapists and killers, we're also identifying that there are individuals who are currently incarcerated for a crime that they didn't commit. The, the DNA evidence in some of these rape kits are exonerating people who are wrongly accused and who have been serving fractions and portions of their lives behind bars for something they never did. So we have an obligation for that as well. And so this is a systemic thing. We can we have to we have to do better. And I think as a team here advocates, we can do that. So thanks for tuning in. Let me know your thoughts and I'll check in with you next time. Bye guys.